Now, on to more serious things uh, this morning uh, as we turn into God's Word. I figure it's, it's summer, we're all together, um, we might uh, you know, have some things like this along the way. But uh, we're going to get into our, our time of study of God's Word. There are um, notes if you want to follow along with the notes out in the front, some things for the kids. Uh, also, if you, you would like as we go along, as we said, we've been going through this summer series of adventures with God. Today, we're going to come to 1 Samuel 17. So if you have your Bibles, you can be in 1 Samuel 17. If you need one, there's one on the back there where you can, uh, you can use, so 1 Samuel 17. And uh, as we've, uh, we've gone through this, we've talked about, about Joseph, how God is making us stronger we talked last week about Gideon, uh, that we need to be brave, but that it's more important to be obedient and to be careful in our lives, looking at the life of Gideon. And so we're familiarizing ourselves, perhaps for some of us, with some of these great stories of, of the Old Testament, maybe reminding ourselves of some of the things we've, we've learned growing up and uh, seeing some new lessons perhaps and things in there that we hadn't seen along the way. Today as we come to 1 Samuel 17, we uh, come to one of the most famous events of the Old Testament, David and Goliath. David and Goliath and the story of David and Goliath in more modern times, recent times, has really become more of a, a description for people than what happens here. We talk about having those David and Goliath battles. Um, you know, whether it's the, the, the smaller against the, the bigger, the, the sporting event, you know, the, the team that's not really prepared is going up against the, the great top team and it's the David and Goliath battle of the year in the footy field or, or the business takeover, the, the small company going up against the big one. And, and so it's become more of a description of things in, in many ways and, and not so much really knowing the details of what it was about. But when we do come to this story, many people will come to this story, most come to it for inspiration. We come here to be inspired. Often we, we come here to get inspired about standing against our own giants, things in our life. Now as we look back over the lessons we've learned in the last couple of weeks, we saw Joseph at the beginning and when we looked at the story of Joseph, we realized that Joseph wasn't really about Joseph, but it was about how God saves his people. And then last week we looked at Gideon, and we saw that the story of Gideon wasn't really about Gideon, but about how God saves his people. And so when we come here to the story of David, and particularly here David and Goliath, we come with the same idea. The story of David is really not about David or Goliath, but it's a story about God, how God saves his people. And that's what these are about. We'll work our way through this chapter, 1 Samuel 17, and pick out some lessons and things as we, we go through. And then at the end, we'll take two big lessons from the story of David and Goliath this morning. But let's start firstly, we'll read the, the first three verses, get our setting and context, and then we'll make our way through the story. So it says in 1 Samuel 17. Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle and were gathered together at Shoko, which belongeth to Judah 
and pitched between Shoko and Azekah in Ephestim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched, the, uh, pitched by the valley of Elah and set the battle in array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side and there was a valley between them. Let's ask God's blessing before we continue. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come to these familiar stories to be reminded of what we have learned and to take the opportunity to be driven deeper into our faith because of what we learn and see. So we ask for your blessing this morning that indeed we would see your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So here these first three verses give us the... Uh, the setting of what's going on. I'm sorry, the, the map probably isn't as big as, as I would hope it to be, but I'll try and give you a little picture here of what's going on so you know where we're at. So at the end, on, on your right side, the end of that green line is Bethlehem. So that's where Bethlehem is at the end of that green line. On this side, on the, the far end, the, the bottom pinkish line, that's Gath. And then just to the north of it is Ekron. They're both um, famous and, and large uh, cities of the Philistines. As you go upwards, so from Bethlehem, if you go uh, north just a little bit, you'll run into Jerusalem. So I'll give you just a little picture of where we're at. So we're south of Jerusalem, kind of west of, of Bethlehem. There is a valley that runs uh, east-west through there, the Valley of Elah. And that's where this takes place. So where all of those lines intersect there in the middle, that's uh, pretty much where this battle takes place in that part of the valley. So the Philistines have been a constant problem to Israel. People who had been in the land uh, for a very long time and they had been a constant thorn in the flesh to Israel. They were a coastal people who had a fierce army. They knew how to fight, they knew how to battle. So they come to this town which is inside what uh, Israel had claimed and, and Judah called Soko. And uh, they use one of the big mountains there, the hills uh, Azekah, which is a strategic mountain in the area. So from that mountain, they could overlook the valley and they could see what was going on and where they're at. So they're in a very strategic place, a place that gives them some advantage in that area. Through the middle of that valley that runs through there is the, uh, a brook that runs through there. Israel is camped on the north side of the valley and, and, uh, and the Philistines are camped on the south side. And so that's the setting of where it's at. Now let's break this down a little bit as we work our way through the passage here. We begin firstly by looking at Goliath because Goliath is the first person we're brought attention to here as we look. And so in verse 4 it says, and there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And he had a helmet of brass upon his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass, and he had greaves brass upon his legs, and a target of brass between his shoulders, or spear. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. One bearing a shield went before him. We'll stop there, and we'll continue through a minute. So here we get a description of this enemy, this Goliath. This is the most descriptive the Bible is of any enemy, apart from Satan, of course, but any human enemy, this is the most descriptive the Bible is about any enemy in the Bible. 
And the reason it's so descriptive is they're trying to, God's trying to help us understand why there is so much fear here. He's giving us the, the context to understand what is going on. He is, by the description we're given here in the word of God, he's over nine feet tall. So he is somewhere around 280 centimeters tall, which means as, as I stand here, I would be able to look directly at his belly button. Uh, so just imagine two of me, and there you go, you've got Goliath, roughly. So he's tall, and he's not tall and skinny. He's, he is a strong, strong man. His armor that he wears, the bronze armor he wears, as we're told, weighs about 80 kilos. That's 80 kilos of armor that he can fight in. The spear, which is described, the, the head itself, we're told, the weight of, which weighs somewhere between 6 and 10 kilos. And he could hurl that spear with, uh, with greatness. So he is here, and he is described for us here as being imposing and intimidating. He is terrifying as a man, and that's why the Bible describes him in detail. He is terrifying, and in his terrifying stature, he is intimidating. Verse 8 tells us, uh, more about him and why it makes him so intimidating. Verse 8, And he stood and he cried unto the armies of Israel and said unto them, Why are you come out to set your battle in array? Am not I a Philistine and ye servants to Saul? Choose you a man for you and let him come down to me. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall ye be our servants and shall serve us. The Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So we're given his challenge. This was a common method of battle at the time. Uh, two of the champions from each side. So a champion from one side and a champion from the other would come out together and they would represent their armies and they would battle it out, whoever won. Uh, became the champion, and, and they would work that, that way. So the Philistines sent out their great champion, Goliath. And not only is he a champion fighter, but he's a champion trash talker. He's out there twice a day, just running them down, and, and, and poking at them, and, and ridiculing them, and, and mocking them. Twice a day he comes out and humiliates them. And it goes on, verse 16 tells us, that this goes on twice a day for 40 days. 40 days. Every day, two times, Goliath comes out and mocks them and taunts them, which means so for 40 days, nothing has been done. Now, clearly, the Philistines have forgotten the last great battle they had with Israel. In that battle they had with Israel, the battle... They won, and the Philistines stole away from the Ark of the Covenant. But then God worked so horribly amongst them because they'd stole the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, that uh, they were so terrified of the God of Israel that they returned it. Now, the Philistines had forgotten that, and here they are taunting Israel again, uh, hoping for another victory over them. Verse 11 which describes for us the result of this, says, when Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So 
this twice a day coming out taunting them and mocking them and calling them to fight was working. It was doing what he had intended to do. They weren't just afraid, they were terrified. Israel was terrified of this man because for 40 days, Israel had done nothing. They'd sat in the camp and done nothing. They're paralyzed by their fear. They are completely unable to see a way to have victory over Goliath. They don't see anyone in the camp in their midst that they think we can send out and battle him and win. So they do nothing. They wait. The reason we're given all of this detail, the reason we're given the, the, the stature of Goliath like this and described how strong and mighty he is and how taunting he is and the reason we're told that Israel for 40 days sits in fear and does nothing is because we're supposed to understand their terror. We're supposed to feel their powerlessness. For 40 days, they had no idea how they were going to deal with this. Israel felt completely powerless. Now I want to address something a little bit that we, we mentioned before in the way that we, many, we often see the story of David and Goliath as being beating our giants. I want you to understand this from the beginning. Goliath is not your giants. He is not your giant. Life is intimidating. It's at this point as we read this that many of the books and many of the stories and many of the lessons we come to about Goliath turn us to look at ourselves, to see Goliath as our personal giants. Maybe we see Goliath as the giant of fear in our life because of what we're facing, or maybe the, the giant of sickness, or the giant of worry, or the giant of addiction, or whatever. Whatever it is that is intimidating us or troubling us in this life, we're supposed to see that as Goliath in our life. Yes, it's true. Life is intimidating, and there are intimidating things in this life. It is intimidating to have to make life decisions determine which way to go and what to choose and how to do the right thing. It is intimidating to look into an uncertain future and fear whether you will fail or not fail. It's in intimidating to, to face the challenges of life that come from so many different ways. Life is intimidating. But Goliath is not meant to represent any of those struggles in your life. Why? Because he's bigger than that. Goliath is representing something bigger than that. Goliath represents the giant that we are incapable of defeating. That's why we're given so much description of him. That's why we're given the description that Israel for 40 days didn't do anything and was in complete fear because Goliath represents something bigger than just our daily fears. Goliath represents what we are incapable of defeating. What we cannot do. We think about so many of the things that we call our giants, that we look at as our giants. Maybe it's the, the life decisions that we, we need to make. You know, there are, are you know, if you have life decisions that you need to make in this world, you can go to a life coach and they can help you make the right decisions in your life. If you are dealing with sickness and health issues, 
you can go to a doctor. And a doctor who has, uh, has, through God's great goodness to this, can help us work our way through so many of our sicknesses. If you have worry or anxiety or things like that, we can go to counseling and they can help us overcome our fears and our worries and our troubles. So in one sense, even in the world, almost all of the things that we call our giants, almost all of those have cures. And we can deal with them. We can live with them. Now, understand this. Though, though this isn't meant to represent our giants, it doesn't mean that God doesn't care about these things. That God doesn't care that we have worries or that we have indecision or uncertainty or trouble or sickness. It doesn't mean that God doesn't care about those just because that's not what this is meant to represent. What we're looking at here is that this is about God defeating the great unconquerable giant. And in defeating the great unconquerable giant in our lives, he makes it possible to deal with all those other issues. The worries and the confusion and the leading. But this is about something bigger than those other things we struggle with. So if that's Goliath, let's continue in the story where we start to meet David. Verse 12. Now, David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons, and the man went among men for an old man in the days of Saul. That is, he was old. The three eldest sons of Jesse went and followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons that went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shum. David was the youngest, and the three eldest followed Saul. But David went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistine drew near morning and evening and presented himself 40 days. Now, what we see here as we look at the beginning, and we'll make our way a little bit by bit through this, this longer section here, we find here David is the younger brother. He is just uh, the, the little brother in this family, to a man named Jesse. Uh, he is the youngest of eight. By this stage, when we come to this part of his life, he has already been anointed king. So he is going to be the future king of Israel, though that is not yet where he is. He's still a boy. Now, David has three older brothers who are serving, as we read here, who are serving with Saul in the army. Their father, Jesse, is concerned about them and how they're doing because your word spreads and they've, they've probably heard what's going on. He's concerned for him, So he sends David with some rations to check on his brothers and see how things are going. David goes, because David is too young to fight. So at this point, David is probably somewhere around 15, 16 years old. Do we have any young men here 15 and 16? We've got a few here, don't we? 15 to 16 years old. So they're, they're about that age. They're not, uh, not old. He's not old enough to, to fight and to be in the, the army at this point. So he's not sent to be a fighter. He's sent to be a messenger. Now, David is also a young man who has an adventurer's heart. He's the, the young man who, if he knows there's a battle somewhere, he's interested in it. 
So you can imagine how exciting this is for this young 15-year-old boy to be sent to the battlefront. I'm going to get to see what's going on. Maybe I'll get to see some fighting. Maybe something cool will happen while I'm there. So this is where he goes. Now, while he is there, verse 23 says for us, and as he talked with them, that is, as he interacted with his brothers and the men there, as he talked with them, behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines, and spake according to the same words. And David heard them. So while he's there delivering the, the, the rations and speaking with his brothers and those around, he hears Goliath come out. And he sees that Goliath has struck fear into the hearts of these real soldiers. Now, we might expect a young man like David, 15 or 16, who is, is there, and he sees this man who can strike fear in these hardened soldiers and these soldiers of, of Israel, we might think that he might be intimidated by what he hears and what he sees. But David is not intimidated. We soon realize as we go through that he isn't intimidated just because he's got this youthful naivety. There's more to it than that. Verse 26, it says, And David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now this little brother has a big belief. David isn't blindly courageous or either, either overly nationalistic. So his motivations here aren't because he's, he's young and stupid or because he is completely nationalistic about Israel. What moves David here is David is outraged. He is outraged at the disrespect of God. And that's what he says in verse 26 to those around him. Do you people not see he is disrespecting the God of this army? The God of this nation? As you read through the next few verses there, as David stands up and says, what, he is disrespecting God. We need to do something. His brothers question his motives. They think, you're just, a, you're just a kid. You want something out of this. You want to be, make a name for yourself. You, you, you don't know what you're talking about. They question his motives about why he's there and what he is doing. But David is certain that something great is at stake here. Something far bigger than these people understand. This, for David, isn't about pride. It isn't about war. It isn't about the land. It's not about the possessions for David. David sees this whole thing as being about God. This is about God in his eyes. Because David believes two things about God. As he stands there that day and he hears Goliath shout and torment Israel and defy God, he knows two things. One, God deserves respect. And two, God can defeat this enemy. And he is certain of those things. So this little brother becomes the confident warrior. So we move down a little in our text to verse 31. It says, And when the words were heard which David spoke, 
They rehearsed them before Saul, and he sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight with the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Thou art not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. Here we see some strong encouragement. So David's been talking, and he he doesn't just talk to his brothers about what he says. He starts talking to the other soldiers around and asking, what's going on? Why is nobody doing anything? Somebody needs to go out and and fight this. I'll go out and fight this. And the word gets back to Saul, the king. Saul has offered, in the verses before, he's offered a big reward for anyone who will kill Goliath. It includes tax exemption for life and his own daughter, Saul's own daughter, in marriage. It turns out she wasn't such a great deal in the end, but that was the package he offered. No one, no one believes that David can do this. Yet, we know the story as you read through. No one believes David can do it, and still Saul sends him out. Saul sends him, this 15-year-old kid. David must have been very convincing in speaking to Saul about why he should send him. So Saul sends this kid out to do a job that he should have done. And at this point, he doesn't even know who David's dad is. He's completely oblivious. He, he has no, he says, well, if there's a kid who says he can do it, if he says he can do it, send him out, let him die, and I don't have to die. Saul's typical cowardly ways. But the conviction for the glory of God is a powerful thing. David is moved by the glory of God. And so to remind him and to prepare for this, it says in verse 34, And David said unto Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear, and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him, and smote him, and delivered it out of the mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, and smote him, and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. David said, Moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of the Philistine. David is certain that God had prepared him for this moment. He's certain of that. David is not confident that he will beat Goliath because he killed a lion and because he killed a bear. So that's not the reason he tells this story. He's not saying, look, if I can kill a lion and I can kill a bear, I can kill this dude. That is not why he's confident, because he did that. Verse 37 tells us why he's confident. He is confident because God helped him kill the lion and God helped him kill the bear and the same God that helped him kill the lion and the bear is going to help him kill Goliath. So this is not about David. It's not about how good a warrior David is or how strong he is. To David, the lion and the bear were his duty. Goliath is his calling. He needed to kill Goliath because Goliath was defying God. Goliath was making a mockery of God, while Israel sat there doing nothing, 
whimpering and crying, Goliath was mocking God. David was not going to have that. God is too glorious for that, too magnificent. So Saul tries to give him his armor. We know that it's too big. It doesn't work. And David refuses because that's not how he was called. That's not what God had called him to be or to do. He needed to do it as David, not as Saul. Now, one of the other lessons we need to learn as we go along and we think through this story is this. You are not the hero. So just like Goliath is not your giant, you are not the hero. That's inspiring to think that, but ignorant. You aren't David. You are not meant to come to this passage of Scripture and imagine yourself to be David. It's presumptive to think that. Why don't we ever come to this passage and think that we need to identify ourselves with Israel? Paralyzed, afraid, completely unable. In fact, that's exactly our position. Why don't we ever come to this passage and assume ourselves to be the Philistines or Goliath who are defying God and rejecting God? Because that's not empowering and that's not inspiring. We want inspiration. So if we're going to be inspired, we need to be David. You're not David. And this passage isn't meant to tell you that you're David. The point of this is not to inspire you to face your giants. In verse 37, we were reminded, and David tells us how he killed the lion and how he killed the bear and how he is going to kill Goliath. David takes no credit. David is not the hero of this story. God is. God is the hero of this story. So don't make this about you. Don't come to David and Goliath and make this story about you. Making this story about David and in turn trying to make it about us takes all of the magnificence out of this story takes all of the glory out of it. What we see is God is saving his people who cannot save themselves. And he does so in the most unlikely way. So don't come to the story of David and Goliath and be inspired to face your giants. Come to the story of David and Goliath and be inspired to see a majestic, powerful, glorious God. That's what we're meant to see in David and Goliath. God. So having thought through Goliath and David, let's consider the battle quickly. Verse 40, as David goes out and says, And he took his staff in his hand. And chose him five smooth stones out of the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had, even in a script, and in his sling was in his hand. And he drew near to the Philistine. And the Philistine came on and drew near unto David. And the man that bare the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and a ruddy and of fair countenance. And the Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog? 
that thou comest to me with staves. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into my hand, and I will smite thee, and take thine head from thee, and I will give the carcass of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air, and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. So as we come here to see the, the beginning of this battle, the things we begin to understand as we listen to David as he talks through this with Goliath is that God will defend himself. David isn't intimidated. David isn't intimidated by this giant. Is it possible that David could die here? Yes, it is. It is possible that David could die. But David is out there because he is involved in something that is bigger than himself, more important than himself. Verse 46 and 47 give us the point of this whole thing. This day will the Lord deliver thee into my hand, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee, and I will give the carcass of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. That is the point of the story. Not David. Not how good he is with the sling. Or how courageous he is. God will defend himself. David was not fighting for something as trivial as himself. He wasn't fighting for something trivial like land or possessions or pride. David was out there facing this giant fighting for the glory of God. The name of God is worth fighting for. God will defend himself. And in defending himself, God will have the victory. Verse 50, after the battle, which uh, goes quickly, so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and smote the Philistine and slew him, but there was no sword in the hand of David. No sword in David's hand, which is exactly what he said before, God doesn't need a sword. He did it with a single stone. It was an impossible foe that was defeated, not with a sword, but with a stone. See, we're meant to remember, by the time we get here to David standing before him with a stone, we are meant to remember the enemy we saw at the beginning of 17, the one that struck fear in the hearts of people for 40 days and completely intimidated and completely paralyzed them, falls to a young boy with a stone because he was fighting for the glory of God. 
shows that God did this, not David. So the victory was won. So let's finish this morning with two lessons. There are a whole lot of lessons we can learn from this, but let's draw out two big lessons or two giant lessons that we can learn from the story of David and Goliath as we've seen it this morning. The first is this, be passionate about God's glory. Verse 37, we saw it. It was God who defended him from the lion and the bear and will do it from the giant. Verse 46 and 47, David tells us, I'm doing this because of God. So the question we're left to answer as we come to this point is what are we living for? What are we living for? Israel and the Philistines were about themselves. They were after land. They were after possessions. They were after power. None of it's worth dying for. That's why there was no big battle. That's why Israel was too afraid to send somebody out because it's just not worth dying for. There's nothing in it. Your life is meant for more than these. Your life is meant for more than possessions or power or influence or things. You're meant for more. David fought not for any of those trivial things, but for something which lasts forever, the glory of God. So what are you living for? Over and over and over again through Scripture, we are told our lives are for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians tells us, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is, even the, the most minute, even the most trivial things of your life are meant to bring glory to God by living for him. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us, for you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Colossians 3 and verse 23, and whatever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord. Be passionate about God's glory. We need to live with passion for God's glory. We want to glorify God in everything we do. It should offend us like it did David when God's name is disrespected. When God is disrespected, that should offend us. It should make us angry. The glory of God is something worth living for. The glory of God is something worth fighting for. The glory of God is something worth dying for. And there is nothing else in this world like that. So how can you live for God's glory? What does it mean to live with passion for God's glory? When I was a teenager, I wanted to be a pilot. I wanted to fly. I had it mapped out. Me and some friends, we had things mapped out. We knew what we were going to do. We were going to fly. We were going to be pilots. Why? Because, man, that's cool. Who doesn't want to fly a fighter jet? That's cool. I want to do that. Well, as things transpired, of course, that didn't work out uh, as it was, but I'd had it planned, and here's how I had it planned. And with some friends, we were going to join the Air Force. We were going to fly. 
We were going to do our time in the Air Force, and then we were going to get out, and we were going to be missionary pilots. See, because that way, with that plan, I could do what I wanted and pretend it was for God. So it wasn't about the glory of God at all. It was about trying to use God to get what I wanted. Of course, I didn't fly fighter jets. Here I am. What might it look like in your life to live for the glory of God? To treat people with love and kindness is something we know for sure. To be content where we're at. To be angered by the misuse of God's name and God's character. To speak up, to talk about God. To live in humility and not pride. To make God the first priority of your life. To look for the beauty of God in everything. And to praise him for it. Those are things that we know with absolute certainty. Was to live for the glory of God. So the first giant lesson is be passionate about God's glory. The last one this morning is this. God is the hero you need. God is the hero you need. There is a giant that you cannot defeat. The description of Goliath and the event is meant to show us an unbeatable enemy. A battle that cannot be won. Goliath represents more than depression, more than hopelessness, more than tragedy, more than fear. Goliath represents sin. Sin is the unwinnable battle. Sin is the thing that no matter how much we try, no matter what we do, we cannot defeat sin. Romans 3 tells us that it's the wages of sin that, that, that kills us. It tells us that it's something that infects every single one of us and we cannot get away with it. Romans 6 tells us the very, the very consequences of that sin, which we cannot get rid of, is death. It is going to kill us. The enemy is going to beat us. Sin, not just our sins, so not just the thing we do, but what indwells us will destroy us. Sin is, like Goliath, our rebellion against God. And there is nothing within us that can free us. So God defeated the giant that you cannot defeat. This is why David and Goliath isn't a lame story about defeating your giants. It's an amazing story of God delivering us from our unbeatable giant. And he does it in unexpected ways. Goliath was beaten by a boy with a sling. God defeated sin through a babe that came in a manger in an unexpected way and then died. Died on a cross. No one expected that. 
No one was expecting God to deal with what most afflicts us in the way that he did it. Humble. You don't have to work hard. You don't have to defeat your giants and your enemies. You don't have to prove yourself. God destroyed the power of sin and death for you. Believe that God did that work. Believe that Jesus did what you could not. He died on the cross to pay for your sins so that you could have victory over your greatest enemy, death. Paul writes to us in 1 Corinthians. He writes about the resurrection and he writes about the gospel of Jesus Christ and he brings us to a conclusion with these magnificent words in 1 Corinthians 15. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. David and Goliath is one of the most inspiring stories of the Bible. And it's inspiring not because David is a hero, so we can be a hero. It's inspiring because Jesus is the hero we can never be. I may not know where all of you are at right now, but I know this. Jesus is the hero you need. No matter where you are at in your life right now, Jesus is the hero you need. Defeating sin is the start. After that, he is there for you in your confusion and in your anger and in your turmoil and in your trouble. So believer, what are we living for? The world is not looking for people who live like they do, but have to go to church on Sunday. They need to see people who live with a passion for God's glory. People who believe God is worth living for. People who believe God is worth dying for. For to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we have spent time looking at one of the most inspiring stories of Scripture. And yet, it is far more magnificent than we imagine. Because it points us not to ourselves but to Jesus, to Jesus who is our great hero. So God, we, the people of God, ask that we would live in a passion for your glory, to live for you above all else. And this morning, if someone here does not know the glory of your name, and the beauty of your salvation in Jesus Christ, please open their eyes to see that truth. 
to know that you died for them to defeat the enemy that they cannot defeat. We thank you and praise you in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.